Welcome back to the Hemingwayless podcast. Excellent podcast of everything. Lady Macbeth has posted something saying, Hey, there is an amazing ba- band called Platon Karateyev. The name of the band comes from the character Platon Karateyev from War and Peace. Cool. Uh, nah. <laughs> There's a Spotify link, but I'm just not going to do it. Um, but thanks, thanks for the heads up. A War and Peace inspired, um, <coughs> excuse me, War and Peace inspired band. Pretty unique. Chapter uh, 33, book 10, chapter 33. Why does Tolstoy present this chapter as he does? What does the reader learn? What is his overall point? Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, This chapter made me think of the two generals problem. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, Wiki Summarizer Bot says, though, The two generals problem. In computing, the two generals problem is a thought experiment meant to illustrate the pitfalls and design challenges of attempting to coordinate an action by communicating over an unreliable link. Okay, a bit of a Chinese whispers kind of situation. Uh, for me, this chapter was more about Tolstoy disproving and disapproving of historians' tendency to give all the credit for victory or defeat to the generals, far away from the actual battle, and specifically to refute the idea that Napoleon was some incredible commander who was solely responsible for the French army's advances through all of Europe and even their eventual failure. Prince Kane says, Tolstoy is really driving home the point that war isn't a game played by countries or generals, even though it may look like it sometimes. They are just as much pieces in it as their armies, and neither of them feel the hand of of chance guiding them. Yeah, maybe it is all chance. You know, maybe it is all chance. Maybe it is all chance. And Napoleon was just an anomaly of luck who just got lucky over and over again until eventually he didn't and he lost a war or two. Maybe. It's a good point. Um, Alright. Oh, what, what chapter are we up to now? 34. Book 10, chapter 34. That's a lot of scrolling to do. XXXIV? Uh, Alright, here we go. Chapter 34. Napoleon's generals, Devout, Ney and Murat, who were near that region of fire and sometimes even entered it, repeatedly led into the, it huge masses of well-ordered troops. But contrary to what had always happened in their former battles, instead of the news they expected of the enemy's flight, these orderly masses returned thence as disorganized and terrified mobs. The generals reformed them, but their numbers constantly decreased. In the middle of the day, Murat sent his adjutant to Napoleon to demand reinforcements. Sorry. Uh, Napoleon sat at the foot of the knoll, drinking punch, when Murat's adjutant galloped up with an assurance that the Russians would be routed if His Majesty would let him have another division. Reinforcements, said Napoleon in a tone of stern surprise, looking at the adjutant's handsome, a handsome lad with, a, a, with long black curls arranged like Murat's own, as though he did not understand his words. 
Reinforcements, thought Napoleon to himself. How can they need reinforcements when they already have half the army directed against a weak, unentrenched Russian wing? Tell the king of Naples, said he sternly, that it is not yet noon, and I don't yet see my chessboard clearly go. The handsome boy, adjutant, with the long hair, sighed deeply, without removing his hand from his hat, and galloped back to where men were being slaughtered. Napoleon rose, and having summoned Corlane Court and Berthier, began talking to them about matters unconnected with the battle. In the midst of this conversation, which was beginning to interest Napoleon, Berthier's eyes turned to look at a general with a suite who was galloping toward the knoll on a lathering horse. It was Balliard. Having dismounted, he went up to the emperor with rapid strides and in a loud voice began boldly demonstrating the necessary reinforcements. He swore on his honour that the Russians were lost if the emperor would give another good would give another division <coughs> excuse me napoleon shrugged his shoulders and continued to pace up and down without replying balliard began talking loudly and eagerly to the generals of the suite around him <coughs> excuse me You are very fiery, Belliard, said Napoleon, when he again came up to the general. In the heat of a battle, it is easy to make a mistake. Go and have another look, and then come back to me. Before Belliard was out of sight, a messenger from another part of the battlefield galloped up. Now then, what do you want? asked Napoleon, in the tone of a man irritated at being continually disturbed. Sire, the prince, began the adjutant. "'Asks for reinforcements,' said Napoleon with an angry gesture. "'The adjutant bent his head affirmatively and began the report, "'but the emperor turned from him, took a couple of steps, stopped, "'came back and called Berthia. "'We must give reserves,' he said. "'One second, sorry, I need to do something.' Sorry about that. We must give reserves, he said, moving his arms slightly apart. Who do you think should be sent there? He asked of Berthier, whom he subsequently termed that gosling I have made an eagle. Send Send Claparade's division. Claparade's. Sire, replied Berthier, who knew all the division's regiments and battalions by heart. Napoleon nodded assent. The adjutant galloped to Claparede's division, and a few minutes later the young guards stationed behind the knoll moved forward. Napoleon gazed silently uh, in that direction. No, he suddenly said to Berthier, I can't send Claparede, send Friant's division. Though there was no advantage in sending Friant's division instead of Claparade's, and even an obvious inconvenience and delay in stopping Claparade and sending Friant now, the order was carried out exactly. Napoleon did not notice that in regard to his army, he was playing the part of a doctor who hinders by his medicines, a role he so justly understood and condemned. Friant's division disappeared as the others had done into the smoke of the battlefield, from all sides, adjutants continued to arrive at a gallop, and as if by agreement, all said the same thing. They all asked for reinforcements, 
and all said that the Russians were holding their positions and maintaining a hellish fire under which Napoleon, under which the French army was melting away. Napoleon sat on a camp stool wrapped in thought. Monsieur de Basset, the man who's so fond of travel, having fasted since morning, came up to the emperor and ventured respectfully to suggest lunch to his majesty. I hope I may now congratulate your majesty on a victory, said he. Napoleon silently shook his head in negation, assuming the negation to refer only to the victory and not the lunch. Monsieur de Basset ventured with respectful jocality to remark that there is no reason for not having lunch when one can get it. Go away, exclaimed Napoleon suddenly and morosely, and turned aside. A beautific smile of regret, repentance, and ecstasy beamed on Monsieur de Basset's face, and he glided away to the other generals. Napoleon was experienced a feeling of depression, like that of an ever-lucky gambler who, after recklessly flinging money about and always winning, suddenly, just when he has calculated all the chances of the game, finds that the more he considers his play, the more surely he loses. Sounds like, uh, sounds like, what's his name, Rostov? His troops were the same, his generals the same, the same preparations had been made, the same dispositions, and the same proclamation caught it in the jeek. He himself was still the same. He knew that, and knew that he was now even more experienced and skillful than before. Even the enemy was the same as at Austerlitz and Friedland, yet the terrible stroke of his arm had supernaturally become impotent. All the old methods that had been unfailingly crowned with success, the concentration of batteries on one point, an attack by reserves to break the enemy's line, and a cavalry attack by the men of iron, all these methods had already been employed, yet not only was there no victory, but from all sides came the same news of generals killed and wounded, of reinforcements needed, of the impossibility of driving back the Russians, and of disorganization among his own troops. Formerly, after he had given two or three orders and uttered a few phrases, marshals and adjutants had come galloping up with congratulations and happy faces, announcing the trophies taken, the corps of prisoners, bundles of enemy eagles and standards, cannon, <coughs> excuse me, cannon and stores, and Murat had only begged leave to lose the cavalry together in the baggage wagons. So, it had been, so it had been at Lodi, Marengo, Akola, Jena, Austerlitz, Borgrum, and so on. But now, something strange was happening to his troops. Despite news of the capture of the Fleetches, Napoleon saw that this was not the same, not at all the same, as what had happened in his former battles. He saw that what he was feeling was felt by all the men about him, experienced in the art of war. All their faces looked dejected, and they all shunned one another's eyes. Only a deeper set could fail to grasp the meaning of what was happening. But Napoleon, with his long experience of war, well knew the meaning of a battle not gained by the attacking side in eight hours, after all efforts had been expended. He knew that it was a lost battle, and that the last accident might now, with the fight balanced on such a strained centre, destroy him and his army. When he ran his mind over the whole of this strange Russian campaign, in which not one battle had been won, and in which not a flag or cannon or army corps had been captured in two months, when he looked at the concealed depression on the faces around him and heard reports of the Russians still holding their ground, a terrible feeling, like a nightmare, took possession of him, and all the unlucky accidents that might destroy him occurred to his mind. 
The Russians might fall on his left wing, might break through his centre, he himself might be killed by a stray cannonball. All this was possible. In former battles he had only considered the possibilities of success, but now innumerable unlucky chances presented themselves and he expected them all. Yes, it was like a dream in which a man fancies that a ruffian is coming to attack him and raises his arm to strike that ruffian a terrible blow, which he knows should annihilate him, but then feels that his arm drops powerless and limp like a rag, and the horror of unavoidable destruction seizes him in his helplessness. The news that the Russians were attacking the left flank of the French army aroused that horror in Napoleon. He sat silently on a camp stool below the knoll, with head bowed and elbows on his knees, Berthier approached and suggested that they should ride along the line to ascertain the position of affairs. "'What? What do you say?' asked Napoleon. "'Yes, tell them to bring me my horse.' He mounted and rode to towards Semenov. Semenovsk. Amid the powder smoke, slowly dispersing over the whole space through which Napoleon rode, horses and men were lying in pools of blood, singly or in heaps. Neither Napoleon nor any of his generals had ever before seen such horrors, or so many slain in such a small area. The roar of guns that had not ceased for ten hours wearied the ear and gave a peculiar significance to the spectacle as music does to tableau vivants. Napoleon rode up the high ground of Semenovsk and through the smoke saw ranks of men in uniforms of a colour unfamiliar to him. They were Russians. The Russians stood in serried ranks behind Semenovsk village and its knoll, and their guns boomed incessantly along their line and sent forth clouds of smoke. It was no longer a battle, it was a continuous slaughter which could be of no avail either to the French or the Russians. Napoleon stopped his horse and again fell into the reverie from which Bertio had aroused him. He could not stop what was going on before him and around him, and was supposed to be directed by him and to depend on him, and from its lack of success this affair, for the first time, seemed to him unnecessary and horrible. One of the generals rode up to Napoleon and ventured to offer to lead the old guard into action. Ney and Berthier, standing near Napoleon, exchanged looks and smiled contemptuously at the general's senseless offer. Napoleon bowed his head and remained silent a long time. At eight hundred leagues from France I will not have my guard destroyed, he said and turning his horse, rode back to Shevardino. Alright, there we go. Napoleon, for his first time in his long military career at this point, he is witnessing a loss. Or at least, not a win. Golly, alright. Well, there's another chapter for you, so have your say, and I'll see you tomorrow.